Well, what do the Finns and the Irish do better than us? Make a pig's ear of caring for heart patients, it seems. Well, recent results now show that we are third in the list of bad providers for cardiac patients. And here, of course, is Dr. Henry Purcell from the British Cardiac Society. Good evening, Henry. Hello there. Now, damning results upon, you know, against the British and the way we look after our heart patients. What exactly does it show? Well, we we do have a poor history where heart disease is concerned. As you know, we are still uh, way up there in the highest rates in the world. Uh, somebody has a heart attack every two minutes in the UK mm. and the, the, the rates are, are still pretty dreadful. However, some impact is being made. We are Rates are coming down, but they're not coming down as quickly as we'd like. Now, what is the cause of this? Is it because we're an obese nation, we smoke too much, or there's just bad provision of preventative medicine from GPs? Well, it's probably a mixture of everything, Jules. Um, as you know, um, heart disease uh, is is really down to some extent to your, your genetic makeup, but it's what we do with our genes uh, that yeah. can make the difference. So if we smoke and if we have too much cholesterol and fat in the diet, if we do become sedentary and, and obese, as you say, these are the, the risk factors which increase us, uh, our chances of, of having a heart attack or a stroke. Yeah, now again, this report, does the report actually specify that the kind of post-cardiac care, that when you've had a heart attack, what then happens is a problem? Or it's the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, we've we've looked at everything. It's a joint report from the cardiology community and the Royal College of Physicians, and it was commissioned uh, by Professor Alberti, who was then president of the Royal College, and it looks at provision throughout cardiology. In yeah. other words, from people, patients being born with congenital disorders of their heart right through to the elderly and heart failure and, as you say, rehabilitation after you've had a heart attack. Yeah, because if you take a, the current situation, I'm not sure if I'm sort of speaking boldly here, but let's just take a patient X and he's sort of called John Smith. He's 54 years old. He smokes, say, 10 cigarettes a day and he's two stone overweight. Mm. What happens with his cardiac care is there'll be generally nothing preventative until he's actually had a heart attack and he suddenly gets chest pains. Then he's rushed into casualty. He's given all the necessary bits and bobs in the coronary care unit. Then he's sort of he's treated. He's sort of given the okay afterwards on the acute attack. And then he may be put onto a. As I understand it, he'll probably be investigated for his coronary arteries and then stuck on this enormous long waiting list for a triple bypass, which can take anything from six months up to two years. I hear in some regions. Now that's how bad it is. What can we do to make it a whole lot better from beginning to end? Yes, it's not always that that bleak, we, we must say. Uh, things are improving, but you are right. There are delays throughout the system, and they're really because we are clogged up with patients. There aren't enough cardiologists for a start. There's about 630, and we need yeah. double that number. Yeah. Uh, so that's one problem. Then, of course, there aren't enough nurses to provide care after bypass operations, so we have to cancel many of those. And there are delays in the patient having an initial angiogram, as you say. But the, the, the key to all of this is, of course, to prevent the, the problem in the first place. And we really need to start that at day one. Yeah. So if we, if we don't have our kids living on hamburgers and Coke, if they don't go on to become smokers and slightly tubby children and obese adults, we've got a very good chance of combating this mm. disease in the years to come. We can halve it perhaps in the next 10 years if we really try. And, and that's what it's all about. It's lifestyle and it's, it's, it's taking the role from maybe the sportsmen, the athletes, etc., yeah. um, you know, to get out there and do something. 
Now, what intrigues me again, as you mentioned, say, smoking and obesity right there, and also can chuck blood pressure in the mix. The problems we have there, for example, there's this new, in this new medication for smoking called Zyban, for mm. example. And once you talk to the smoking lobby and they say, oh, everybody who smokes should have this. But then you talk to the doctors and they say, well, our hands are tied because we can only give it to people unless they go on a specialist smoking course, which means they're going to take every afternoon off for three weeks, which, of course, most people can't do because they're working. And it's the same with obesity. If you go and see your average doc or sort of nurse or dietitian, they'll say, you know, exercise, get a good diet. Whereas nowadays there are some quite safe medications, you could say, like Xenical or Reductil, which can bring the weight down quite dramatically in people at the same time as them doing their best to actually lose it. Um, do you think medications like this should be actually pushed more into the people who are at risk? Well, uh, they, they have a role, certainly. Um, we can't prescribe these drugs whole scale. They're not for everybody who's overweight, and half the population is overweight. They are for those who have a high body mass index, who are clinically overweight, and yeah. they do have an important role. They can't be used indefinitely. They are short-term measures which must, must be introduced with, with lifestyle advice. This and is, the same goes for smoking. Yeah, the, the interesting thing, as you say, with body mass index, because I've always sort of raised an eyebrow with this, and yeah. what it is, it's a factor, for those that don't know, it's a factor of, of your height versus your weight and you come out with a figure which means how obese, obese you are and anybody with a body mass index over 30 is deemed to be sort of in the unhealthily obese or you know overweight zone anybody below 30 and above say 24 is considered just mildly overweight and should also lose weight but you're saying say with these sort of medications anybody with a body mass index over 30 yes it's a good idea but somebody could have a body mass index of 29 yeah. and, does, and does the fact that they're say two pounds lighter suddenly put them into a whole different category Yes, I mean, it, it's slightly arbitrary, uh, as is blood pressure, high blood pressure to some extent. Yeah. Um, there is no magic cutoff when you suddenly run no risk. And we found this in the recent trials of lipid-lowering therapy as well. Yeah. Your cholesterol can probably never be too low. Uh, so we, we, can, we can achieve much of this with lifestyle, but there are times when we do need to use these drugs that you're describing. It's a question of uh, how much can the country afford because they can't be used on perhaps everybody. Uh, we have to select patients who are at higher risk. Is that because can I kind of is that sure. because it's a financial thing? Um, to some extent, although the guidelines we follow are strictly clinical based on evidence, and yeah. these are the ones that we implement now, and they, they may well change as more data comes through from these large clinical trials of mm. statin drugs, etc. Yeah, because this is, as you say, I mean, with the statin drugs, the initial research showed that anybody with a cholesterol over a certain figure should have it, and below it, you're okay. But the new research now shows that this new, the below figure, you should also be taking a statin drug and sometimes you know you know with my cynical eye on things you think that perhaps the department of health say well actually if everybody could benefit from a statin we're going to go broke in a year because everybody should be on these medications so can you just put an artificial cut off there please well to some extent that's true but i think you have to rationalize it we don't have a limitless budget and what we are concentrating on are the very high risk patients and the, the most at risk are those who've had a heart attack yeah. we've got to prevent them having a second one so they're the ones to concentrate on and then the rest of the population we have to look at globally and see among them 
uh, that group, what population who, who may need an intervention such as one of these drugs. Right. So there's, it's a tiered system, I guess. Now, after somebody's had a heart attack, I mean, generally, triple bypass, uh, triple bypass surgeries come on quite well now. It's, it's a lot safer operation than it used to be. Same with something called angioplasty, where you blow a balloon up just to break the clot. Uh, what's the sort of, you know, what is the longest time you could effectively wait for an operation like that? Well, um, the uh, the problem in the UK, of course, is that there have been long waiting lists of up to a year, but these are coming down. Um, in America, you can have your angiogram, your dye in the arteries, and you can have an operation done within within the week. Uh, we don't want to have patients waiting on long waiting lists indefinitely, obviously, because they're more at risk of having a heart attack while they're waiting or having a second one, perhaps. So it's very important that uh, they have an intervention as soon as possible. Now, we are limited by the number of surgeons, uh, etc., and nurses for intensive care beds that are available to look after these patients. So we're really working hard to get more doctors out there and to get the patients their operation sooner than later. Now, now when you say you've got half the amount of cardiologists you actually need, how long effectively, if you started sticking people in med school that said they want to become a heart surgeon now, when can you solve that problem? Well, it's, uh, as you know, five, six years plus before you qualify in medicine, and then you have to have a uh, a higher training going through the various grades in in hospitals uh, before you you achieve your specialist training certificate and, and that can can take uh, up to up to 10 years right. so it, it's a long time to make a specialist in medicine some sometimes it's 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 more reduced than that but i'm just generalizing so even if the department of health agreed and said we agree with you now let's get some more cardiologists it might at least be 15 years before you've got that number absolutely unless we can go and plunder some from america well we? um that that <laughs> is being looked at of course to try and seduce uh, some other yeah. doctors from from abroad I think when we do that, you must agree with me, actually, we can't, we can't then make the health service in that country worse because of our need. Well, there's a big ethical dilemma, Jules, you're quite right. We can't take the cream of, uh, of, mm. of medicine and nursing from these other countries and, uh, and not have some payback. Uh, it is, it's a major dilemma. Right. Dr. Harry Purcell from the British Cardiac Society, thank you very much for talking this evening.